Gresham College presents Our Future Off Earth by Professor Christopher Impey. It's a great pleasure to be here to talk about something that I got interested in a few years ago. My, my research in astronomy tends to focus on the distant universe, supermassive black holes and galaxies far away. So if it's closer than a billion light years away in my research, I don't really care. Uh, everything I'm going to talk about tonight is a lot closer than a billion light years away, and I do care. Um, I realized that there was a little tension, or it felt like there was a little tension uh, in between two uh, senses out there in the popular world that led me to be interested in writing a book about the future of space travel. The tension was between the sense that space travel was in malaise, that we'd lost our way. It was almost two generations since humans went to the moon, an amazing achievement, but was barely remembered by anyone. Um, and some major landmarks in space have gone, come and gone, the space shuttle retired, uh, and so on. And so it seems like we're in irons, to use a metaphor. Um, on the other hand, there's a, the bubbling of a new activity funded by the private sector in space that's in its early stages but shows some great promise. So I wanted to reconcile these two things, the sense that we had nowhere to go in space, we'd done it, it wasn't interesting, nobody cared, and the fact that some people still care quite a lot and that there's a lot starting to happen. So what is that all about? Well, first, let me give you a reference. This is a reference particularly for the part where I talk about the distinction between leaving the Earth and going somewhere in the solar system and going to the stars, which is the dream, of course, of the visionaries and for science fiction for 100 years. Um, space is big, so let's make a little scale model to get everything in perspective. Um, you know, make the Earth a golf ball, the moon is a pea this far away. And in this scale model, which is shrinking the universe by 10 million, that's the distance we've traveled. That's the distance humans have been off Earth. And only two dozen people have ever left the Earth's gravity. And that journey cost 50 billion euros at current, dollar, at current levels to send two dozen people off the Earth. A very expensive thing to do. In those terms and on this scale, the sun is a 100 meters away, three meter ball, and the whole solar system fits in the sort of central London area. And that's to the distant planets of the solar system. The very nearest star, which may or may not have planets of interest to us, is not even on the Earth in this scale model. It's, it's 50,000 kilometers away. So the distinction between going to the moon, going to the solar system, a few miles in this analogy, and going to the nearest star, tens of thousands of miles in this analogy, is, is enormous. And that's sort of a little perspective on space travel and the distances involved. Let me start, though, with history. Um, this is an amazing map that has been possible in the last decade by mapping genetic material from indigenous people around the world and basically showing how far and how fast humans traveled when they left Africa about 50 to 70,000 years ago. The date is a little uncertain. But notice the striking speed with which humans, in particular, having gone across Europe and Asia, migrated over the existing, at that time, land bridge, ice bridge, if you like, to uh, Siberia, to the United States, or Alaska, and then down through the Americas, uh, reaching southern Patagonia, uh, you know, perhaps 10,000 years ago. So that's a few thousand years to go all the way through the Americas. Humans are the only species on the planet that have traveled these forbidding distances as small groups of hunter-gatherers just living off the land 
without a need to do so. All the other long migrating species of whales or birds, they do it on a cyclic manner or seasonal variations for reasons of procreation or, or food. Humans do not, have not done this journey for food. And, and in fact, it's even more than that. When I look at this path, I think, well, halfway through this huge journey through the Americas, a few hundred generations, enormous hardships to do that. Uh, they were somewhere in Southern California. Why didn't they just sort of say, oh, this is pretty nice. I'm going to stay in Santa Monica, you know, as it was then. Um, no, they went all the way to Patagonia from Alaska, a pretty, you know, amazingly cold and nasty place, to Patagonia, another cold and nasty place. Why? Um, nobody really knows, but there is a variant of one gene, um, the DRD2 gene. It's an allele of a gene that's found in everyone, and this variant of the gene is, tends to be found in 10% of the population. But the presence of this very variation uh, increases with the proclivity of a culture to travel. And this research data shows that the proportion of this variant of a gene increases with the thousands of miles different cultures have migrated in human history. Now that's not evidence, you know, completely persuasive evidence, but it's indicative of the fact that this gene correlates with the propensity to explore, to travel for its own sake. And it's been dubbed the explorer gene. So obviously, human exploration, uh, it cannot be reduced to a single genetic component. Intriguingly, though, this genetic component in modern humans also correlates with risk-taking behaviors, you know, extreme sports, ADHD, some things that are you know, associated with curiosity, some are dysfunctional behaviors. So it's a plausible scenario that we are built to travel in ways that other species are not. And you can easily imagine that there's a sweet spot here. If, that, uh, if there was too much of that variation of the gene, then you'd have a small hunting gathering tribe where essentially everyone's wandering into the cave or off the cliff and they don't survive. And maybe if there's not enough of this, then they don't take risks and they're immune, they're uh, vulnerable to changes in fortune or climate. So this is the premise that humans do this because we're built to do it. And, and doing it off Earth is just an extension of the way we did it on Earth tens of thousands of years ago. Well, space travel has a long history, but longer than you may know. The first potential putative astronaut was Wan Hu, a minor functionary in the Chinese Empire at the time. On the command from him, 47 servants walked forward with lit sticks and lit 47 firecrackers, you know, pretty, pretty impressive fireworks, at the corners of his bamboo uh, sedan chair. And in the legend, Wan Hu became the first Chinese astronaut. In fact, he probably died a hideous death of burns and so on. Um, but he sh showed this inclination to reach for the stars. And so this dream has been alive for a long time. Um, the innovation starts in ways where it's very hard to project, and this is a little theme of the talk, that it's hard to imagine the origins of an activity and project where it might reach. This tiny little liquid oxygen rocket just at the top of that frame is Robert Goddard's first experiment almost 100 years ago, and it went 183 meters across his Aunt Effie's frozen cabbage patch on a bitter midwinter day in the Midwest, and it's hard to project this capability, modest as it is, to the Saturn V rocket that two generations later would take humans to the moon. But it's the same lineage, it's the same technology, essentially. And so we have pioneers of the space program, some not as well known as others. I'll highlight Miss Baker, a spider monkey that 
was the first primate launched into orbit and successfully recovered. Miss Baker lived to the age of 42, quite old for a spider monkey, and was buried with full military honors at Goddard Space Flight Center in, um, by NASA. And, uh, and actually 4,000 people attended Miss Baker's funeral, and I think any of we should be lucky to have 4,000 people at our funeral. Um, we can remember the strange origins of the space race. Uh, it was born out of a, an anomalous situation, perhaps, maybe not the most noble beginnings for something that might have altruistic potential, because it was born out of a superpower rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. And most of the first landmarks in space were, of course, set by the Russians. The Sputnik launch that shocked and scared the United States because it laid bare the potential for nuclear weapons in space during the Cold War. The first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, the first woman, the first spacewalk, the first object landed on the moon. The, the firsts were all set by the Russians in the first decade, leading the United States to put an enormous effort into catching up. But this was a brewing and intense uh, geopolitical and military rivalry, and you know, not the, maybe the best starting point for the space program. So we have to wonder uh, what it has bequeathed to us. There were enormous risks taken by these pioneers, and astronauts did die. It was an extraordinary sensation. I had never felt quite like it before. I was free above the planet Earth, and I saw it, so it was rotating majestically below me. In 1965, Alexei Leonov, another first for the Soviets, the first spacewalk. It's hard to imagine what it would feel like to be the first human, not only in zero gravity, but hovering, hanging above your planet. He nearly didn't survive the experience. He nearly died three different times when his spacesuit malfunctioned, uh, when the oxygen gear started exchanging water, almost drowning him, and then when his airlock didn't work, coming back into the Soyuz spacecraft. These were dangerous undertakings. And of course, with the benefit of hindsight, the high points in the space program have been overlaid, overlaid with a kind of mythic, heroic gloss. So I'll show that side of it is well represented in a well-known Ron Howard movie. So we're hauling the mail. We are go for launch. T minus 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6.
And we know it didn't go so well after that, but even that became part of the heroic narrative, how with duct tape and ingenuity, the astronauts saved the Apollo 13 mission and came home alive. Um, and whether we like the geopolitical military backdrop to the Apollo race to the moon or not, it was a magnificent undertaking. It involved the work of over a quarter million scientists and engineers, 250 different companies, it was the most complex piece of hardware ever built by humans. Those rocket engines are still the most powerful rocket engines that have ever been built. They never failed once. If you want to visualize their power, imagine a three-meter diameter circle and imagine the force of all Europe's great rivers rushing through it. That was the thrust of those rocket engines. An incredible thing, an incredible achievement. Um, and of course, so long ago that most humans were not alive when it happened. and they. Some of them even doubt that it happened. I teach in the United States, young millennials, and opinion polls show that in the US, seven to nine percent of the public think this was faked, think it was a conspiracy, you know, the government faked it, it didn't really happen. And, uh, and so, you know, it's just interesting that such a phenomenal technical achievement, like it or not, uh, has faded into cultural history, into the mists of time so quickly, and left us where? Exactly. Um, I will point out that we still have hardware left on the moon. The little reflectors left behind have shown us that the moon is moving four centimeters away from us, from the Earth, every, uh, day, every year, a gravitational interaction between the two bodies, which is also slightly slowing the Earth down in its spin. So your day is one millionth of a second longer every year, and use that time wisely. Um, and and then there's the extreme form of denial exerted by this Dutch filmmaker, Bart Sibrel, on Buzz Aldrin, the second man to set foot on the moon. You're the one who said you walked on the moon when you didn't. Calling the kettle black if I ever thought of saying Will I you misrepresented get it myself. Away from me. You're a coward and a liar and a thief. So I would never condone violence, but you don't mess with an astronaut. Don't deny their experience, especially a singular experience like that. I had the privilege three years ago to go to something called Space Fest, which moves around the United States, and it's a sort of you know, space nerd's dream of, of astronauts and the meteorite sails and space talks. And it, they did the amazing trick of three years ago assembling not the nine men who stepped foot on the moon, uh, Armstrong doesn't do that, and the other two are dead. So those are the only nine you can get in one room, on one panel. It was kind of amazing, because that's a pretty special club. There's no doubt about it. Um, and then the deniers, well, as an educator, you know, that pisses me off. I sort of oscillate a little bit on that, that the idea that one in 13 people, you're at a supermarket and there's 12 people in front of you, and one of them is an Apollo denier, statistically, that kind of annoys me. On the other hand, if any of us were, it could, this could apply to the UK too, don't think this is just about America. If you made a list of the batshit crazy things that one in 12 Americans believe, then, you know, moon denying is just in there with JFK's conspiracy theory, Elvis is still alive working in a Walmart somewhere, etc. You know, just make the list. 
So why get all bent out of shape about the Apollo denying? It's just a function of public ignorance and science illiteracy and so on. Um, but it's something we live with. And yet we have been there. Space is not a natural place to be. It's a hard place to be. I'm not by any means in this talk arguing, oh, we have to go there. It's natural for us. It's our destiny. It's our birthright. No. We do it, as John Kennedy said when he challenged the United States to go to the moon to do an extraordinary thing. He said, we do it because it is hard. We do it because it challenges us, because it tests us. And I do think, you'll look around, and as a culture, as a society, we've sort of shied away from those kind of things, those extreme challenges, whether they're technical, artistic, cultural. We kind of take the easy route. You know, we have our social media, we have everything kind of arranged comfortably around us, and you know, we'll just get out of our way and let me live my life. We don't want to do anything too super hard. So space is super hard, yeah. And that's still a challenge to some people. So let me get to that by just staying, said it's staying for a minute, just taking a snapshot where we are. So it has this strange history, the work of mostly two superpowers that were in a rivalry. But that's then. Things are actually changing. And remember, that club is small. There's still fewer than 600 people that have experienced zero gravity. Um, by comparison, the number of people who stood on Mount Everest is 6,000, 10 times larger. It's not such a big deal, not such a special club. I mean, it's a nice club, but it's not so special. It's a young activity. It's less than two generations old. If we were stepping back, we have been humans, anatomically modern humans, with the last changes in brain chemistry that altered speech function that have dated genetically to about 40,000 years ago, after we left Africa. Those are modern humans, undistinguishable from us. So that's 40,000 years. We have 400 years of industrial revolution, and we have 60 years of the space age and the computer age, both. That's very young. We, it's very hard to say where they will go. We have to be a little patient. We have to let these things play out. Um, but if you look at what's going on, especially in the United States, which has invested the most in the space program, especially since the Soviet Union's demise, Russia is now a moderately poor second world country, and they have a lot of space hardware that's actually really old. It's, of course, a great, it's a matter of ignominy that the United States is now five years and counting without the ability to put an American astronaut in orbit without help from the Russians. And they're not on good terms, so that's a little awkward. The Russians, meanwhile, are still using the same proton rocket to send the Soyuz capsule into space. And that, uh, that design dates back from the mid-1950s, Kovalev, the architect of the Russian space program, a veteran of the Second World War. That's a 60-plus-year-old technology. These things haven't moved on in large parts, like it's frozen in time. And then we've got the space station, we've got the shuttle, which lost two out of the five orbiters with the death of all on board, catastrophically, a very horrendous thing for Americans to have to witness on TV. Um, that's, a, that's a big failure rate, and it was an old technology the time those things happened, and it's been retired. And we have the space station, which is the work of lots of countries, including this country, the US, and 18 others. Uh, and it was supposed to cost $8 billion three decades ago, and it's $120 billion and counting. And the companies that were supposed to use it for research on pharmaceuticals and whatever else have not flocked there. They only even got interested when it was so subsidized that it was just costing the taxpayer a lot of money. So to a lot of people, that's international pork. And so, Nobody's very excited about that. The space shuttle's gone. And you can see why it feels like malaise, especially in the United States, but maybe more broadly. 
So that's the situation. The context for that situation with NASA is pretty easy. If you make a map of the US federal budget, you don't have to see all the different boxes, but there's defense, uh, social security, Medicare, health, about $4 trillion now. And NASA is a small sub box in this region. NASA is a tiny piece of the federal budget. When Americans are asked how much of their tax dollar goes to NASA, they guess five cents, 10 cents. The answer is less than a third of a cent. So they overestimate how much is spent on space by order of magnitude. And, and so you know, that may go with the fact that they don't support it as much. They think there's already too much being spent on it, but they way overestimate how much is being spent. And there's the NASA story, a kind of intriguing story. And the spike at almost 5% of GDP in the early 60s was completely unsustainable, of course. And the downturn in NASA's budget happened before astronauts even stepped on the moon. The last three space, the last three lunar landings were, were canceled. They didn't occur. And it went into free fall. And then after a little bump for the space shuttle in the 1980s and 90s, you can see that even since then, the last few decades, NASA's budget has declined by a factor of two. So NASA gets dinged. I hear the arguments one way or the other. Oh, NASA has no imagination, no vision. Well, they don't have a lot of money. That's the simple thing. It's hard to do difficult, expensive, challenging things with a budget that's declined by a factor of two in the last few decades in real terms. So, uh, and of course, we all know that money is spent where it needs to be. In the 2008, um, an amount that is $800 billion, which was this history of NASA's funding since its founding in 1959, was spent bailing out the banks on Wall Street. So, you know, don't say there's no money for NASA or no money for healthcare or no money for whatever. There's, mo there's money, there's bags of money in the US if you want to spend money or you have to. So it's a matter of context. NASA has other problems too. Their PR is not always wonderful. They tend to get in the news if something blew up or they need money. These two things are, of course, connected because if something blows up, you need another one. So, you know, this is not a good, this is not a virtuous cycle here when you're in a sort of failure mode. Meanwhile, there's a new space rivalry. There's a new uh, Cold War, if you like, brewing, and we know about this. This is with China. China is going to be the world's largest economy in a handful of years, and they are going to be the world's superpower in space in six or seven years based on projections. So just, you don't have to see the details, just count the tick marks. That's the number of human launches China's had in their Taikonaut program. Taikonaut is a made up word to riff off cosmonaut and astronaut. Uh, and current Chinese plans, so from a standing start, their budgets have been growing at the rate of their economy. And until the Chinese economy sort of plateaued a little bit in the last few years, that's eight or 10% a year. That's a doubling every five years. Compare that to NASA. And now you can see why from a small start, China is now rivaling, rivaling any space power. And their ambitions are large. They have stated goals of a lunar, lunar base, a Mars base, and a space station. The concern, of course, is that their space program is very secretive. It's not transparent at all. It's very closely twinned with their military. And the concern is they're going to militarize space and put weapons up there. There's no sign of that yet, but that's a real concern. So, you know, countries, the world's countries, are very edgy about China's plans in space. And the Chinese are aware of that, so they're trying to allay those fears. Uh, but that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a new, there is already a new space race brewing amongst companies, uh, countries rather. 
But what I really want to talk about, of course, is the private sector, because that's the new thing. That's the new energy, the new buzz in the room, the new money on the table. And that has the potential to transform what we see into something that 20 years from now could be unrecognizably different. But you have to take the first thing. It's a baby, and a baby is just walking and crawling. You don't know what that baby's going to do when it's 20 years old, right? So when Dennis, when Dennis Tito, uh, 15 years ago, paid $20 million to ride a Russian Soyuz spacecraft for a week's vacation at the space station, everyone said, you know, $20 million, yeah, he's a billionaire, so what? And, uh, and as of today, only eight billionaires have become space tourists at a cost of 10 to $20 million each. And there are people you know or don't know. Charles Simone, an investor, did it twice. Uh, Antoine Labrie, the founder of Cirque Soleil, was the most recent one. Uh, and Soyuz, uh, the Russians have actually stopped taking money for that right now. So there are no space tourists like that planned. There are only eight. It's a tiny number. It means nothing. But what was more interesting, of course, was the X Prize. And that didn't uh, involve true space, zero gravity. It involved suborbital flight. It was a challenge prize won by Bert Rutan, a brilliant designer of aircraft that turned his hand to spacecraft in the, in the late in the last century. And the challenge was for repeated suborbital flight reaching 100 kilometers, the formal definition of space. Uh, and of course, all the companies that vied for the X Prize spent more than the prize on trying to win the prize. Because the model for this was the Lindbergh Prize, the prize that Charles Lindbergh won for crossing the ocean in 1927, the first solo flight. And that prize was only 25,000. And the 12 teams that vied for that all spent more than 25,000. Lindbergh, dubbed by the press the flying fool, was the dark horse. No one expected him to win. The point is the prize itself generating a, a huge new activity. And the fact that 10 years after Lindbergh's flight, an extremely daring, crazy, dangerous thing to do, civil aviation had been established. And people were starting to fly routinely. That's the analogy. And so we have Richard Branson, and so we have Elon Musk, and we have now entrepreneurs, billionaires, that are truly committed to the space activity. They all made their money in other ways, and they all have a dream. Elon Musk has said he wants to die on Mars. Right? Who am I to doubt him? He's busy building electric cars and spaceships and all sorts of things, but um, his, his heart is in space, if you like. So these are people, yes, they're very rich. Um, but they're also not interested in ROI. They're not doing it for a profit. They have to have a business model. They're smart business people. But they, there's something, there's a gleam in their eye that goes well beyond that. That's not the reason they're doing it. They're also, they also, on average, tend to be young enough to see it through. They're in it for the long haul. Um, and I will point out that there are almost 2,000 billionaires in the world now. If you want to feel a little sad, you could imagine um, what your net worth is, and the fact that there's twice as many billionaires this year as there were five years ago, so they're doing just fine. Um, and maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But they have a lot of money to burn, and some of them are doing interesting things with it. And some of the names you know, Branson, of course, Musk is in the news in the U.S. and elsewhere. Others you don't know, Peter Diamandis, behind the scenes, invented the X Prize, this brilliant method, this way to gin up interest in competition. Bert Rutan, the brilliant designer who Branson poached to be the chief designer for the Virgin Galactic Company, having seen him win the X Prize with his designs. So these people, it's a small group of innovators, talented people, rich people, businessmen, entrepreneurs. And often there are double threats. 
Musk is a brilliant investor and entrepreneur, but he's trained as an as a engineering physicist. He knows the physics of space flight. He's down there with the designs and the engineers every day at his plant in Southern California. So these people know what they're doing. They're not uh, you know, naive people in any regard. And then there are ones we don't know as much of. Uh, Jeff Bezos, huge deep pockets because he's the Amazon CEO. His company, Blue Origins, is so secretive, it's hard to divulge their intentions. But we've recently seen them enter a very uh, interesting competition with Musk to have a fully reusable spacecraft to zero, zero gravity. And then very recently, Yuri Milner. So you can see the common theme. You have to sort of look a little Eastern European and male pattern baldness and so on. There's a, that's if you want to be a space entrepreneur. So if you, if you don't look like that, don't even think about it. And they have designs. And they have very advanced engineering concepts. So there's a whole engineering sector involved in this. Um, this is the British contribution, which is very exciting in its early stages, reaction engines partly funded by the EU and the British government, is developing a space plane that will be air breathing at low altitude and convert seamlessly to pressurized liquid oxygen rocket to take it to zero gravity and then just land on it on a runway at an airport. It's the perfect design, a reusable, fully reusable space plane. And there are other designs out there. Um, the Lunar X Prize is another indication of money on the table. Google has challenged people for a prize of 30 million to develop a little robot of, of any design that will land on the moon, travel 500 meters, and send back data or images. Um, and, the, and governments can't play this. Only individuals, companies, research groups, universities. So there are student groups that are vying for this prize, that have crowdsourced their funding. I mean, the bar has been lowered for this activity in a way that's hard to imagine when only governments with billion-dollar budgets could play the game. It's very exciting. There are spaceports being built. This is the one in New Mexico where Virgin Galactic and eight other private space companies now sit. This is the plan for the British spaceport, which is down to a choice of three. And I said it's a pretty political decision where which one gets picked. I think it'll happen this year. They'll decide. Um, so Britain will have a spaceport too, and there'll be a handful of other spaceports. It's an international activity. There's about 20 of these private space companies. It's hard. This was Musk's first attempt to land, re-land his spacecraft on an offshore platform. And he posted the video the next day. I mean, he said there will be mistakes. Uh, Branson, as we know, there was a disaster with Spaceship Two. A pilot, a co-pilot died. The pilot nearly died. They were taken, raked over the coals in the reports for lax security and engineering procedures, and they gone back to the drawing board. And so, you know, there will be problems, but these people persist. So just a week or so ago, here's Musk's fourth attempt. And this is as hard as it looks. So that's the goal, full reusability. And the reason you need to do this is the physics is a bitch. This is the rocket equation. And the rocket equation says that why, why the Saturn V rocket 
was 97% fuel to launch that little 3% payload. You're just hauling chemical fuel, one of the most inefficient forms of energy that the, that the planet still lives on, unfortunately, and space travel is no exception. It's been chemical rockets since Goddard, and it's still chemical rockets almost 100 years later. All that's happened is an extreme optimization of the materials and the technologies and the goal of reusability, because that just brings the cost equation down. And so what Musk is trying to do is break this historical curve between the cost per kilo or pound of payload and how much you can put up there with his heavy reusable vehicle. And he's trying to bring the cost per kilo down by a factor of five or seven from where it is now. That's his goal. And if he gets there, the economics of this will be transformed, as I'll show you in a minute. And we will remember that people will die, not just Branson's co-pilot, and nearly the pilot, there will be some passengers that die. Interestingly, after that Spaceship Two disaster, Branson very publicly offered back the deposits of all the thousands of people that put down a quarter of a million dollars for one of his six-minute zero-gravity orbital, suborbital joyrides. He only had a handful of takers right at the day after a co-pilot died, and people would know this is dangerous. You know, some things are going to fail. And there's the curve of the fatality rate per launch per million miles or per launch of space uh, commercial flight. You can't see the scale, but it starts at the Second World War and it goes to today. And it represents a factor of 100 decline in the fatality rate of civil aviation. So flying was dangerous. It was very dangerous for Lindbergh. It's dangerous in the 30s when the first airlines developed. And now nobody thinks about it. And so space travel is looking to follow that same trajectory. Of, safety, of safety, reliability, and there's no reason why they should not. Uh, some of the hazards are a little less obvious. And then there's the mundane. I mean, everyone thinks of the glamour and the exoticness of, of space travel. One, one thing to remember, which was very well concealed by the right stuff of the astronauts, one in 10 people who go into zero gravity for more than a few minutes who do true orbital flight get sick. I mean, really sick. And, and you know, astronauts are just too macho, they're mostly still men, to admit that. So NASA's had to tease out these statistics. So some people get sick, debilitatingly sick. It just happens. It's not a comfortable place for human physiology and psychology. The other thing, of course, is mostly about plumbing. I mean, the unglamorous truth about the $120 billion space station is that most of the time those astronauts were not doing scientific experiments. They were doing electrical work and plumbing. And when the plumbing goes wrong, that can be a problem, too. I'd like to begin tonight with a special Colbert Report shout-out. Hey! This one goes out to astronaut and friend of the show, Garrett Reisman, who is watching the rapport from orbit right now in a desperate attempt to forget that his space station's only toilet is broken. <laughs> Terrible news, unless you write news headlines for a living. In which case, Houston, your job is easy. According to NASA, the astronauts are now using a backup bag-like collection system. <laughs> to be clear, this is not a bag. That's what we'd use here on Earth, in space. 
They use the advanced technology of a bag-like collection system. Is, is everyone clear on that? Steven? Yes? Is it a bag? Because it sounds like these astronauts are pooping in a bag. No! These men are not pooping in a bag. They are heroes. They are pooping in a collection system that is bag-like. It's science. It's science. We're moving on. Anyway, Garrett, just hold out as long as you can. And, hey, wait a second. What's my rain stick doing here? Garrett, the whole nation clenches with you. Together, we are a roaring waterfall of solidarity, a mighty river of flowing support. Besides, if things get really desperate, you can always relieve yourself in the Hubble Space Telescope. So let me come back to the money behind this new activity that's just starting. Uh, again, not to make you feel poor, but there's the growth in the number of world billionaires. They're collectively worth now over $7 trillion. And the main ones that we've been talking about have each spent a good fraction of their fortunes or fraction of a billion dollars on this activity. And there's a lot of people that could do this. And many are young, techie entrepreneurs who are inclined to do so. So basically, their capacity it already exceeds the capacity of the world's space agencies that are doing it with their static or declining budgets, except the Chinese one. But you put all those budgets together, and two dozen space entrepreneurs could beat that budget and match everything the governments are doing. And they will. I think that's already clear that's going to happen. So I mentioned the economics, and I run an economic model in my class, teaching these young millennials, 18-year-olds. So I just take that cohort, project to the US population of just 30 million college grads, that's a tenth of the US population, and ask them how much they would spend for a once-in-a-lifetime, few-day, zero-gravity orbital trip. Not the Branson six-minute joyride, but real zero-gravity. Assuming, not that it's perfectly safe, but it's pretty safe. And the answers are interesting, because as you can imagine, as the cost comes down, you eat into the capacity of people or their inclination to spend this money. And so if the price comes down per kilo to launch to zero gravity by this factor of five that Musk will almost certainly attain, and probably Blue Origins and Jeff Bezos too, within a few years, then you're projecting revenues of $20 billion a year. That's the same as Hollywood. That's the, that's the sum of all ticket sales and C CDs, DVDs for Hollywood. So we'll just compare them. It's entertainment. Let's not pretend it's, you know, it's exploration or the grand frontier. It's entertainment. It's recreation. And it's rivaling Hollywood already in the US, in this market. Uh, and then I went further using Wikipedia, the source of all information. Um, and I found, I plotted the average cost of a space mission since pretty much the dawn of NASA last 50 years, and the cost of a new average cost of a movie. Movies have been getting more expensive. Space missions were getting cheaper, and then they got a little more expensive. But these curves crossed a few years ago. So the average movie does now cost more than the average space mission. Uh, and if you want a particular comparison, you could use this. I use this when people question the cost of astronomy and why are we spending money on astronomy. That's not very useful. Um, well, for $400 million, a lot of money, I agree, 300 million euros, you can have a really cool movie by a great director about life on an exomoon, Avatar, 
or you can have the Kepler mission that actually found 200 Earth-like planets out there. It did the experiment. They cost the same. Now, maybe you don't have to have one or the other, but that puts the science into a little perspective because we happily spend money on the movie. Meanwhile, there's an unseen revolution occurring at the low end. This is not the part of the enterprise that involves raising humans, which are big, clunky, life support needing entities into space, fragile, you know, we're the hard part of this equation. The interesting thing happens when you don't insist on us doing the traveling, but you have little sensory proxies for us traveling. And so nanobots or small miniaturized satellites have just taken off. This is the launch rate of CubeSats, which are little 10 centimeter cubes full of sensors and complete computer packages and so on that you can bundle into a payload. Each one will cost few tens of thousands of dollars. Student groups do this, crowdsourcing the money. So it's not governments anymore, it's not even companies, it's not even universities, it's little groups of people who want to do this can play in the space, can put these things into orbit. The sprite on the left is really small, and I'll remind you, of course, that the guts of your smartphone is actually smaller than that, and, and also just for reference, to make Apollo's achievement a little more impressive, the processor in this is 100 times faster or more powerful than the computers that had to get Apollo to the moon and those people back safely. So they were working with not much on this. This has moved forward. And so miniaturized technology, perhaps attached to solar sails, which will then take solar energy and project into the solar system, it's right here now. It's happening as we speak. This is an exponential rate of progress. And the point is you no longer have these big, expensive telecommunication satellites where you can't afford to lose one. You launch hundreds or thousands of these things, smart modes, and if some of them don't work, that's fine. You just use the ones that do. They actually decay in low Earth orbit and burn up in the atmosphere. You don't even have to worry about space debris. And this is how the world is going. So most of this is Earth-looking work from low Earth orbit, but again, attached to a little ion drive or a solar sail, these same little smart moats or miniature spacecraft could be traveling in the solar system, doing the work of hitherto huge spacecraft. <coughs> so this cost per person is going to come down. I'll just take it. This is the logarithmic plot, so it's logarithmic. Just the difference between expendable rockets and both stages reusable, which is what Musk and Bezos have essentially demonstrated at this point. Um, will take us down from a quarter of a million to zero gra for a human-sized payload to zero gravity to a number that's completely manageable. And then, of course, a significant number of people are going to be willing to do this for a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So the economics of it are completely doable. Actually, after that, it gets harder. Most of the gains are going to be made in the next five years, which is why we're really in the sort of takeoff point of this activity. All the innovation is happening right now. All the economic gains are being realized in the next five to 10 years. So it's a very exciting time to, to stay tuned, of course. And I'll make a historical analogy. Maybe this is pushing it a little, but I think you'll see why I do it. Uh, of four phases of an activity that we take for granted. Internet is like air, it's like water. We don't think about it. And almost nobody would know that man at the left. That's J.R. Licklider. He should be known to everyone who has an interest in history. He was a, a, in a research institute um, at the RAND Corporation, and he wrote a position paper in 1960 where he fully envisaged in detail, just find it on the internet, the wireless internet, data in the cloud, 
these, these devices that we live and breathe with at a time when the average computer was the size of this stage. That's extraordinary vision for someone to have. It then moved into the incubation by the military, and the first people who have email in the 1980s, late 70s, were people in the military and government institutions. University people and researchers started getting email in the 80s. I remember getting it in the late 80s. And then, but the public didn't know anything about the internet. You couldn't do email. It was, you know, it was unheard of. It incubated in the research arena. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee, obviously the first web browser, happened at CERN, a research institution. And then 1995 was called the Big Bang. The word internet was coined. A, a company called Amazon was founded. Two graduate students at Stanford started to dream up something called Google. And now, 20 years later, could anyone really look back and imagine from 1995 to now what could have happened? Well, first of all, those millennials that I teach, they're 18 or 19, I tell them that 20 years ago there was no internet. They look at me like I'm stupid or dumb or what are you saying, like I'm from Mars. How could they even imagine it? They can't. So I'm not going to push the analogy, but I'm going to ask you to imagine that we may be on a point now that's like 1995 for the internet. The history is similar. We have the visionaries, the Goddards. We have incubation by the military. NASA, Werner von Braun secreted from Europe. These are not pleasant stories. Werner von Braun was the, obviously the architect of the V2. The V2 rocket killed seven or 8,000 people in this country, and it was responsible for the deaths of eight or 9,000 slave workers at the Middleburg plant where it was built, and von Braun knew. His Nazi past was sanitized, cleansed, the American public knew nothing about it, and he was placed as the architect of the Apollo program. It's a little awkward, but that's how it happened when the military was running the show. And then it moves into the research arena. To his great credit, when NASA was founded in 1959, Eisenhower declared it a civilian space organization. This was the general, this was the World War II general who was pushing hard back against the military advisors during the Cold War who wanted NASA to do military research. And he said, no, this should be a civilian space agency. And it is, thanks to Eisenhower. It's transparent, all documents are visible, and it's always been that way. And so when is the Big Bang? I don't know when. Maybe it's not this year, maybe it's not next year, maybe it's not as explosive as the internet growth. But I'm gonna bet you right now that 20 years from now, we could look back at the space program and it will be unrecognizably different in two decades than it is now from the seeds that we're seeing sprouting. And the evidence of that, I'll just show you this graph. This is the number of space launches since the dawn of the space age. The big bump is the superpower rivalry. And the only point I'll make is that last year, for the first time, the majority of space launches were private space launches for the first time in the history of the space program. I do think it's happening as we speak. So let me finish with some predictions. Dangerous to make predictions. But some are not so dangerous to make because we can see the technologies in play right now. Well, some of them are not so uh, comfortable. There are no laws out in space. Um, this is a little hard to say, but there's, there's no regulation in space. There's no regulation against sex motels and zero gravity, against advertising, against uh, neon signs in orbit, which would drive astronomers crazy. There's no, there's no laws of ownership. The Treaty of the Moon, which was the first treaty that the UN declared, uh, that the, the, the UN has had two attempts to make treaties across all countries. 
the one that mattered was the Outer Space Treaty of 65. That demilitarized space. And that was signed by the world superpowers and now by 110 countries. That's great. But the Treaty of the Moon that followed a few years later, which talked about ownership of the moon and other celestial bodies, it wasn't signed by any of the world superpowers. So, so you can own whatever you want. There are no rules. There's no enforcement and there are no rules. There's no law. There's no people to appeal to. The UN has no purview. So it's going to be a wild west out there. Let's just admit it for what it is. This is something I think we'll see. Uh, it's a space elevator. It's a stairway to heaven, if you like, an Indian rope trick. Um, Arthur C. Clarke was asked, he'd envisioned, he's envisioned this, he said, when will we have a space elevator? And he said, 50 years after everyone stops laughing. Um, well, people have stopped laughing. The trick of a space elevator is to find a material that's ten, whose tensile strength, strength to weight ratio, is sufficient that you can play up a cable of it to the point where the centrifugal force of the spinning planet holds it against its weight, just hanging there and tethered to the ground but it's literally suspended by gravity and spin. And if you can do that, you've just broken the whole cost equation that caused that Saturn V rocket to spend 97% of its fuel launching those three men in a capsule. Because you can have things riding up and down the cable with solar power for free, no rocket fuel. So space elevator is an incredible innovation. So the bad news is space elevator is not possible from the Earth with current technology because we don't have materials good enough, but we might in a decade. We could build a space elevator on the moon right now because of the weaker gravity. And so if we had a moon base and a moon elevator, you have a staging point to the rest of the solar system. So that will dramatically cheapen the cost of solar system exploration. Would also cheapen the cost of mining asteroids. That's another thing that could happen anytime soon. And that some fraction of these billionaires, maybe the ones that are more analogous to the miners and oil rig uh, pioneers of 50, 60, 70 years ago, there are people who are going to do this as well. They're going to lose fortunes. Some will be made. More will be lost. There are about 100 near-Earth asteroids, about 500 meters in diameter, that are uh, we know we can rendezvous with a comet and land spacecraft on it. We can attach rockets to a large rock and steer it. And so we can bring, with no fancy rocket science, one of these near-Earth asteroids into an Earth-Moon captive orbit and then mine it. And if you have about $2 trillion worth of platinum group metals, plus all the rare Earths, which is hard to tell what that's worth, but it's a similar amount, someone's going to do this. And so mining asteroids, has, the time has come, and there are some companies that are just plotting their path to doing this. You just don't tend to read about it as much as what Branson's doing, what Elon Musk is doing. But it's going to happen too, and it's going to happen fairly soon. Now it gets a little uncertain, so now I'm going to project the, the far, farther future, and, and you won't be able to hold me to it. Um, and, and making predictions is hard, and so I'll use bad quotes by people about computers, because I've talked about information technology. So, uh, you know, the chairman of IBM saying there's a world market for five computers, well, that's really silly. Or the head of a major computer company saying, why would anyone want a home computer? Or even Bill Gates, let's give him a ding. He said 15 years ago, I can't see why anyone would need more than 64K of RAM. So all these people should have known better. It's hard to make predictions. The problem, so one prediction I will make is that going beyond the nearby Earth situation. Let's get the context again. Go back to the scale model. Zero gravity is like half a day's drive straight up. It's not that far, a few hundred miles. 
The moon, a quarter of a million. The planets, hundreds of millions. The outer planets, a few billion. And then you're into tens of trillions to the stars. So to get beyond the solar system will take something new. The laws of physics are a bitch again, and we're using chemical fuel. It cannot happen unless we develop new technologies. And there are technologies that don't break any laws of physics that have been around for decades. It's just they haven't had any R&D. They haven't had any investment. I mean, there are technical designs that could be pulled off the shelf and attached to a few billion dollars from a space entrepreneur. They're very well thought out engineering designs, and suddenly something could happen. So let's not even write off interstellar travel. And if we're going to be naive and project, extrapolation is so dangerous when you're a scientist. Here's a logarithmic plot in both axes. And you can imagine, all the way from horse and buggy through cars and planes and the space shuttle, that maybe in 100 years, we will be to a few percent of light speed. And then you can do something interesting. Then you can leave the solar system. In fact, you can do more than that. If you can do that, you can actually travel or colonize or explore through your nanobots the entire galaxy in a few million years, which is a fraction of a geological time scale. Not that hard. Makes you wonder if anyone else has done it first. And this recent announcement is exciting, because these people are in the baseball analogy, if you don't have it here, but swinging for the fences is just you know, trying to hit the long ball. They are trying to hit the long ball. So breakthrough star shot which obviously has illuminary minds. There's Yuri Milner, you've already seen him. He's put $100 million into this. Stephen Hawking is there. Mark Zuckerberg is there as one of the uh, board of advisors. And so there's very impressive minds that are attached to this idea to essentially take super small spacecraft, attach meter-sized solar sails to them, beam phenomenal amounts of energy, petawatt energy from lasers, and shove them to 10 or 20% light speed and reach the nearest star. A crazy idea. I mean, it really is incredibly ambitious. It's a huge amount of laser power. It's a tiny, tiny spacecraft. And as I show the animation, I'll mention, you know, there's some huge technical issues they haven't shown how they can achieve, such as beaming those lasers onto a meter-sized spot, such as having a navigation system to hit a target 10 trillion miles away that's a gram across, such as having a transmitter on those tiny spacecraft that can beam the, uh, the information back down the line of the waves of these things you send there. Lots of big questions to answer. But they're dreaming. They're starting. There's money on the table. This is the most extraordinary project of all, just announced a few weeks ago, right here, I mean, in, in uh, London. So this is exciting. And then there are things that I'll just rule out, things that aren't going to happen. We're not going to terraform Mars. Don't get excited. We're never going to live there. It's too damn expensive. Think of how expensive it is to get humans into zero orbit, even when it comes down in price. Going to Mars, living in anything more than a little bubble dome, just not going to happen. And then from the 1970s, I found these. NASA envisaged huge pinwheel gravity-supported civilizations in Earth orbit. Um, and I look at that and think, God, what were they smoking? You know, and it was, it was the early 1970s. Even in NASA, they were smoking. So there are things that are not going to happen. So here are my final predictions. We are going to find a neighboring Earth, uh, our clone, a possible place we could go. But don't get your hopes up. It's likely it'll be 100 trillion miles away, not anywhere we could get even a few of us any time in the next century. 
So if we screw up this planet, we're toast, right? We've got to look after this one. There's no place to go. There's no greening of Mars. There's no nearby Earth to go when this one's crumpled like a tissue and tossed aside. But that will happen. Astronomers will find our clone. I think suspended animation techniques, which are being experimented on in medical labs for reasons of dealing with the near-death boundary and understanding brain death, uh, replacement of full body fluids and taking our closest mammal analogs, which are pigs and dogs, to a frozen state, essentially, and then resuscitating them without harm, okay, some die, um, is, is progressing very fast. So I'm going to project that suspended animation technology, which would be required if we were to leave the solar system, is going to keep progressing. I'm going to predict the Chinese go to the moon next, and that will accelerate this new space race, because America will have to go back if China goes back, that the loss of face and the geopolitical advantage will be too great. I am going to project that in 20 years we'll have our thousand space tourists. Remember, at the moment we have eight. So I'm thinking this is going to take off. That's almost a comfortable prediction. I'm going to predict that some of these companies, maybe Branson in his dotage, is going to take one of these. Na I've mentioned that NASA is not short of talent, they're short of money. And so NASA has incredible ideas on their shelf for planetary exploration, for all sorts of space astronomy that they just can't fund. The engineering has been done. It's all in a book. And one of the ideas that I, I'll just guess that Richard Branson says, hey, I'd do that, is a billion-dollar mission to go to Europa, melt through the ice, and release a hydrobot to look for life. That could well be the first detection of life beyond Earth. It's a very plausible experiment. The, the work's all been done. It would take about 10 years to do it. Uh, I think it'll happen. The private sector will step in. I think in this time scale, the first off-Earth baby will be born. And to go back to my beginning thought, this is as foundational and pivotal a moment in human history as when we left Africa. It's dramatic to be off Earth, to be the first colonist, to be the first offshoot of the human tree that starts to be different from the human tree. If there is a moon or a Mars colony, evolutionary divergence will accelerate the and the different physical situations of gravity and otherwise will accelerate the distinction of those humans from us such that within a few hundred generations, they are not us. And they are looking back at us as uh, humans 2.0, basically, from another place. So that will start to happen, I think, in our lifetimes. Mars is harder. It's not going to happen quite as quick as some people think, but it'll happen. I think Google will take on the world of nanobots and information. They already won't own the information of the world. That won't be enough for them, so they won't own the information out there in the solar system, and they'll use fleets of nanobots and sensors beaming the information back to their botnet. I think I'll give breakthrough star shot they'll do, and, and I'll say that in 2060, the 10-year 20, the gestation, the 20-year there, and the 20-year back will happen, and so we'll first see in Alpha Centauri. That will be great. I'll say a few years after that, decade or so after that, we'll have created the ability for those nanobots to replicate using by mining materials, by micro-mining materials on asteroids and moons. And then you could exponentially proliferate through the galaxy at perhaps a few percent of the speed of light. That will be us colonizing with our remote sensing proxies the galaxy, an extraordinary thing to do. Within a century, it's going to be possible. Teleportation is not even off the table. I will give my only nod to Star Trek, which mostly just gets it wrong. It's way too anthropocentric. Um, but teleportation is not ruled out by the laws of physics, and these tangled quantum states have now been demonstrated uh, with coherent information over transcontinental scales, with no upper bound known in physics. 
So teleportation will cautiously move forward, maybe not to the point of humans, that's a very tough problem, but to the point of demonstration of the proof of concept. And I'll leave you with something I'm really confident of, that within 100 years, we will have mastery of this part, this part of our grand universe, the solar system. And if the solar system seems a little remote, austere, or even mundane to you, then just look at the images of Wim Bernquist set to the words said decades earlier by Carl Sagan, this will be our world. For all its material advantages, the sedentary life has left us edgy, unfulfilled. Even after 400 generations in villages and cities, we haven't forgotten. The open road still softly calls, like a nearly forgotten song of childhood. places with a certain romance. The appeal, I suspect, has been meticulously crafted by natural selection as an essential element in our survival. Long summers, mild winters, rich harvests, plentiful game, none of them lasts forever. Your own life, or your bands, or even your species might be owed to a restless few drawn by a craving they can hardly articulate or understand to undiscovered lands and new worlds. Herman Melville in Moby Dick spoke for wanderers in all epochs and meridians. He said, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas.
For more information, please go to the Gresham College website, www.gresham.ac.uk.